Well, for those who are visiting in our class this morning, we're going through the book of Amos, and <clears throat> we um, we're coming to the end of the of the book. Uh, last week we talked about God's anger, God's dissatisfaction with His people taking an ungodly ease or rest. And we talked about when, uh, when these people started taking this ungodly rest or ease, they became self-centered. Uh, they became less um, giving and caring of others. Uh, they became more greedy. And these were some of the things that God was going to judge them for, even though they were God's chosen people. He would continue to set the standards, and if they fell short, they would be judged. And um, so we find ourselves uh, at uh, chapter 7 in Amos. So if you haven't already turned there, that's where we're going to take a look at our jumping off point today. Now, it's hard to... Um, it's hard to tell how many sermons Amos actually uh, used uh, from this material. Uh, some of the passages we've studied may have been complete messages or complete sermons. Um, they kind of hold together. Uh, other passages may be just parts of a message or parts of a sermon that he used. Uh, it's hard to tell uh, from what we have here. We know that... Uh, for instance, chapter 1 and chapter 2, Amos pronounces judgments upon the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms, as well as the enemies of uh, Israel. And that kind of uh, holds together as a complete sermon. In chapter 3 through chapter 6, uh, Amos' de declaration of the different woes that will come upon the people um, may have been... Uh, uh, several sermons involved with that, and these may have just been clips or parts of those sermons. A new section seems to begin in chapter 7. And what seems to hold the, the last section of this book of Amos together, uh, starting in chapter 7, is a description of five visions. And they have to do with judgment. So um, I wasn't expecting this many in class, so you, you may want to just share uh, this, but if you want to, somebody want to hand these out, I'd appreciate it. Thank you, Bill.
the first three uh, visions are found in chapter 7. And so um, we're going to take a look at those. So starting in verse uh, 1 of chapter 7, going through verse 3. This is what the Lord God showed me. And behold, he was forming a swarm of locusts when, he's, <clears throat> when the spring crops began to sprout. And behold, the spring crops was after the king's mowing. And it came about when it had finished eating the veg vegetation of the land that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob stand? For he is small. The Lord relented of this. I shall not be. It shall not be, said the Lord. So the first vision here is a vision of locusts. Um, that uh, Amos sees as part of this judgment that God is going to bring upon the land. Then in verse 4 through 6, we see the second vision. So the Lord God showed me, and behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire, and it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How could Jack Jacob stand? For he is small. The Lord relented of this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. So we're talking here about fire and the destructive nature of fire upon the land. And the third vision he has here. Um, <coughs> It's in 7 through 9. So he showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not spare them any longer. The high places of Isaac will become deserted, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruins. Then I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. So we see here that God is measuring his people to see if they've met his standard. And then um, chapter 8 and verse 1. One and two. We see the next vision that he has here. And this is what the Lord God showed me. And behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. And he said, What do you see, Amos? And I said, A basket of summer fruit. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people, Israel. I will not spare them any longer. And then the final one uh, is found in chapter 9. And 1 through 4. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar as he said, Strike the pillar capitals so that the thresholds will shake and break them on of the heads of them all. 
Then I'll put to death the rest of them with the sword. They will not have a fugitive who will flee, nor a survivor who will escape. For they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. And though they hide on the summit of Carmel, I will track them down and take them from there. And though they hide themselves from my sight in the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent from there, and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, for there I will command the sword, and it will kill them. And I will set my eyes against them for harm and not for good. We have here the uh, visions of Amos and What I plan to do today is to take a look at the first three visions and then the last two and the remaining verses of chapter 9 we'll uh, touch on maybe next week and finish it up. It's probably fitting that Amos should end his prophecy this way. Um, He's warned the people in the opening section of the book, uh, that judgment was coming. And then like a lawyer presenting his case, he explains why, what were the reasons for this judgment that was coming. And in this final section, Amos displays the symbols of that judgment. And it makes his last appeal for those who are still true to God, those who are still living in his uh, uh, fear and admonition, the remnant, um, to flee from the judgment of the coming uh, almighty judge. And so we see here that he's broken his book down as a warning. He explained what's going to happen. Then he uh, shows displays of how this is going to come about. In these visions, the inevitable, uh, inevitability of judgment comes through very plainly. For it's based on the unchanging character of God. It's based on who God is. God is love, yes, but God is also a God of justice. God is a God who has certain standards and requires his people to submit to commandments and, and uh, statutes. Ken, can you help? So, um, this past week I was listening to the radio, and there was a guy on the radio who, um, who said this, God does not change. His truth does not change. His standards do not change. I don't know about you, but that kind of brings comfort to me. Um, Worshiping a God that we can rely on. A God who's not always uh, in flux. However, from a human sinful perspective, uh, we would like God to change. 
We think it would be nice if we could change him. If we could get him less holy. If we could get him to be less upright. If we could get him to be more indulgent of the things that we do. But we cannot change him. He's unchangeable. Thank God for that. God is who he is. As a result, we have to come to terms with him, not the other way around. We have to be the ones that are changing. We're the ones who need to submit to him. And these visions teach us to do that while there's still time. While there's still time. We've made applications throughout this book on how this would have looks like in America. And, you know, America is ripe for the judgment of God if we're not going through it already. Some commentators and writers that I've looked at while studying this book um, see no hope in the book of Amos. Some writers go as far as saying that verses 11 through 15 of chapter 9, the last verses in the book, were actually added there as an editor uh, would add something. Uh, They didn't think it was part of the original text of Amos. Well, I certainly don't claim to be a a superior, uh, have a superior insight into the book of Amos. It seems to me that there is some hope uh, in all these judgments that have been presented to us. There's some hope in these woes that he preached to other people. And that hope can be found in these visions, and particularly the first three visions, where they seem to kind of flow together. These three visions show a progression from what God says he's going to do to what he actually will do. And somebody would say, well, what kind of hope is in that? They show that he will not utterly and totally destroy Israel. That is the righteous along with the unrighteous. But that he will carefully measure all the people by his own perfect standards. And there's some hope in that. God sends messages to his people by way of Amos using images that they were familiar with. Locusts, fire, and a plumb line. Let me just make a side comment here. The um, term that we use uh, in the New Testament to describe Jesus as a carpenter could probably better be interpreted as a builder. And yes, he probably was able to create things in, in Joseph's workshop, but he was also familiar with building larger structures and buildings. So this, to me, is kind of like a foreshadowing of Jesus. 
as the standard. Jesus would be familiar with what a plumb line is. And those of you who haven't seen one in a while, you put this up against the wall to see if the wall is going up straight. And if it isn't going up straight, the wall eventually is going to fall over. So this is the plumb line or measurement to see how straight something is. Today with the laser technology, they don't use too many plumb lines, but I happen to have that one. The first vision that is offered here about the locusts is kind of reminiscent from the book of Joel. Joel prophesies uh, dealing with locusts. And again, from my reading uh, of the description of, in Joel, um, I believe the locusts were real insects that he was talking about because of the scientific description of the damage that they did. Um, I think it was very much uh, possible that these were real insects that Joel was referring to. And we know that God used actual insects as part of the judgment he brought against the uh, nation of Egypt, the gnats and, and whatnot. So God can use insects as part of those judgments. This one here, uh, mentioned in Amos, uh, could also be locusts, uh, uh, physical insects. But some writers believe that it could also be God preparing the Assyrian army to invade Israel. Kind of give you a picture of the destruction uh, that is, the Assyrian army will bring upon the land. God, or Amos tells us that the devastation will happen after the king's harvest. It will occur during the second harvest. Well, if you're familiar with the climate of, of the uh, area of Israel, it's much more uh, like um, Florida or Southern California where they have two seasons or two harvests, two crops that they can plant and harvest, whereas Michigan, we, we have one. The king's harvest was most likely a tax on the people. And so if something would happen to the first harvest, or the king's harvest as they called it, there was always the second one to fall back on. The king would most likely still get his share, the government always does, yet uh, there would be at least something for the people to live through the winter. But if the king already has his, and your second harvest is destroyed, then most likely the people would starve during the winter. And this would be terrible and devastating judgment that would impact all of the people of Israel, the righteous and the unrighteous. So Amos pleads with the Lord against this. Sovereign Lord, forgive how can Jacob survive? He's so small. Amos argues that the locust would destroy Israel completely. 
And God says that the locust plague, which again is perhaps symbolic of an invading army or maybe actual locusts, in either case, the total destructive invasion force would not take place. We see here, again, hope displayed. We see hope displayed in God's mercy. We see hope displayed here in God's love for his people. We see hope here in the grace of God. The second vision is a vision of fire, the fire of judgment. This is more clearly symbolic, and I say that this is probably symbolic because of what Amos writes here, for it is described as drying up the great deep and devouring the land, which literal fire could not do. I mean, literal fire could not take a large body of water devour it physically. So I think that this is more symbolic of, uh, of something else. But it symbol, uh, symbolizes a judgment on Israel that would ha leave nothing in its wake. It would take care of all the land. It would wipe out all the water. And if there's no land, if there's no water, there's no crops, there's no way for the people to survive. Amos objects and as he did in the first vision, he says, Lord, I beg you to stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. Again, the character of God is displayed here. Mercy. God replies that the total destructive judgment will not take place. Twice Amos was shown a vision of Israel's impending judgments. And Amos immediately responded with what? What? Prayer. See what God was going to do rather than to debate with God, rather than to go in a different direction. He humbled himself and he prayed. He humbled himself and he prayed. Prayer is a powerful privilege that we have, and we fail too often to use it. We fail too often to use it in proper time in a proper place. Amos' example of his prayer should remind us that we should be praying for our nation like he prayed for his. And particularly that God's will would be done in our land. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's quite possible if you would look back at the history of Israel that these closing years of their existence that the locusts and the fire refer to actual invasions by other forces from the east, and that those forces were turned back by the hand of God. If this is the case, then God is saying that he has often turned back the judgment that was due Israel. They deserved it, 
And because of his love of his people, because of mercy, he stepped off. Again, if this is the case, we can see hope in God's love for his people. But what about you and I? Are we any different than these people in Israel? How many times has God turned back a judgment we deserve? So again, I say we serve a merciful God, a loving God. We see the difficulties we've endured through trials of hurricanes, tornadoes, and earthquakes, or the stress of losing a job or losing a loved one, or our health. These experiences that God brings into our lives are always far less than what we really deserve. Again, we see in these episodes the character of God. He's not an unjust God, for he will judge every sin, for he is a holy God. Every sin will be eventually punished, either in Christ, our Lord and Savior, on the cross of Calvary, or in person as the sinner himself. But what it also means is that God is merciful and that he is custom, <coughs> customarily withholds judgment that we rightly deserve. He at times gives warnings of the coming judgment in order that the wicked might have time to repent. Again, another mercy of our God. Yet be mindful, as we have already studied in Amos, when God sends a warning, you can be certain of the coming judgment. It will come to pass. Again, a God of his word, a God that you can depend is unchangeable. However, because of his love towards his people, he often stays or holds back the severity of judgment. Praying and hoping that this sinner would repent and return to him. And this is the theme that we have seen several times in scripture, which we can easily apply to our own country. So we could say, have we been going through times of difficulties, such as wars, COVID, high gas prices, heating oil shortages this winter, hurricanes, inflation? Could these things be warnings from God? If they are, then God's people should be in the forefront of those who repent of their sins. We should be the ones who humble ourselves, seek the Lord, pray so that he will stay his hand to even greater disasters, and pray that he would heal our land. Before I go on to the third vision, any comments or questions on the first two? Any thoughts?
Well, the third vision we see here is the Lord standing by a wall that had been built uh, with a true to plumb. Again, the plumb bob was in his hands. And when God is pictured as standing by the wall with a plumb line, this is a way of saying that he's about to check out Israel to see if the nation is as upright as it claims it, should, it claims to be. Now, Israel was real happy when judgment was declared on its enemies around them. It wasn't so happy when Amos brought judgment in Judah and Israel. And they couldn't understand why. We are God's chosen people. And God's ready to measure that statement. How true are you? Israel started out uh, true and correct. God had called people unto himself and had given them the law to govern their religious and political lives. In the beginning, they were what they should be. The question is, will they stand up to God's measurement now? We know from reading the book of Amos up to this point, there's no chance that they will measure up to the standards. We've already read about their corruption, uh, their religious corruption. We've already read about their greed and their um, laissez-faire concern about the poor and how unjust they are. So we already know pretty much from what we've read that these people will not measure up. They have deviated from God's norm, his standard, his, his precepts, his commands. And they inclined themselves to disobedience. And they ran after the sinful world. I think there are two things in particular that stand out as not measuring up to God's standard. The first is the corrupt national religion the high places and the sanctuaries of Israel. And the second is the government, the house of Jeroboam. Both have been measured by God's plumb line and found wanting. The high places. The high places where where Jeroboam established the national religion in Bethel and Dan And these are very much um, places where we can see that the people distorted God's word. They abused his law. They became looking for, for idols to uh, rule over their lives rather than the one true God. In these high places, grace was abused in its nature. The grace of God in the Mosaic tradition was God's freely given love, reaching out to draw sinners to himself. But at these shrines of the grace they sought after, 
was to benefit worldly things. And they were seeking prosperity through the fertility of the land and through the animals and through their family. Grace was also abused in how it was obtained. The scripture, grace is given in answer to our prayers, our, our broken heart, our contrite spirit. In the sanctuaries, they were seeking blessings of God by means of ritual fornication with the temple prostitutes. Furthermore, there was nothing more to the shrines than the attempt to gain God's favor by works. They were trying to gain God's love and forgiveness by doing things for him. The priests did not pressure the people to change or reform their life. There was no voice by the priests to call the people to obedience. As we read earlier in the book of Amos, the, the offerings that they brought, the sin offering was not part of that. They were not convicted of their sins. They had no feeling to repent of what they had done and, um, and how they had uh, defiled God's law. So they were not willing to obey him. Sin was not mentioned and nor was it rebuked by the high priests. Therefore, by God's standards, they were found to be wanting. And they abused the grace and they forgot the law. The second feature that God measures was the rejection of the house of Jeroboam. God gave Jeroboam, like other kings, a moral charge in ruling his kingdom. Turn over to 1 Kings 11.38. 1 Kings 11.38. God gave them a king. He set up the standards for the king um, to follow. Jeroboam fell in that regard. And he gave these similar charges to other kings as well. If you will hearken to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statute and my commandments, I will be with you. And I will build you a true house. In man's eyes, Jeroboam uh, brought about prosperity to the land. Uh, he offered stability in the land. But in God's view, he didn't measure up. 2 Kings 14.24 reads this, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the, all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. Jeroboam's sin was that of disobedience to the law of the Lord. 
Among his first acts was to disobey God in the matter of the shrines at Bethel and Dan, and in the setting up of the golden calves as idols of worship. He rejected the law of the Lord and brought corruption into the midst of God's land and people. We've seen in chapter 1 and 2 of Amos how God will judge other nations and will, as well as his own chosen people. So again, I ask the question, why should we feel our own nation should be exempt from this judgment? In recent years, we've been heard the statement that we should not use a litmus test in choosing Supreme Court justices. Yet our president had just recently used a litmus test in his pick for a Supreme Court justice based on the color of her skin and her gender. I guess it all depends on who's in power. Yet God uses a litmus test. He uses his plumb line to measure how nations stand up. Again, I ask, how does America measure up? If you will hearken to all that I command you and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments, I will be with you and will build you a sure house. Well, that's the nations. What about individuals? Prophets like Amos were often seen as traitors, as conspirators, to be, because they spoke out against the king and his advisors, questioning their authority and exposing their sins. The king often saw the prophets as enemies rather than God's spokesmen who were actually trying to help him and help the nation. Let's take a look at Amos 7. In verse 10 and 12, Amos 7, 10 and 12. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel. And the land is unable to endure all the words. And for this, what Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land to exile. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee to the land of Judah, and eat bread there, and do your prophesying there. Amaziah, the chief priest in Bethel, represented Israel's official religion. He is not concerned about hearing God's message. It seems ironic for a high priest. He only wants to maintain his own position. He only wants to maintain his own power and his own control. To him, maintaining his position was the most important thing, and even much more important than God's truth. Skip down a couple of verses to verse 16. 
So now hear the word of the Lord. You are saying, you shall not prophesy against Israel, nor shall you prophesy against the house of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. Your wife will become a prostitute in the city. Your sons and your daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be parceled up by a measuring line, and you yourself will die. This is the effect of having our own lives evaluated by God's plumb line. God measured Amaziah and found him wanting. Before God steps in, our lives are made up of small ethical decisions, which seem fairly straight at the time we're doing them. When we compare them to other people, they seem even straighter yet. Naturally, we compare them to the people that are worse than we are. We tend to rate ourselves very highly. But then God steps in with his plumb line. And we don't quite measure up to God's standard. This is the trouble with appealing to God's justice, which a lot of people try to do. Many think that they all want uh, is from God is his justice. They say, God, it isn't right for you to judge us with your locusts and your fire. Some of us are better than others, and we demand that you take that into consideration. So God says, all right, we'll see who really measures up. We'll see who's really being good. And he sends his plumb line in, Jesus Christ. He said, this is my standard. This is what good is. Who can measure up to that? And no one, of course. When measured against Jesus Christ, we are all condemned. So this is a great lesson to learn. An appeal to justice will save no one. All will be condemned by God's justice. But if I will forgive my pride, if I will abandon my arrogance, and instead ask not for justice but for mercy, I will find the same Christ by whom my corruption is revealed is also the Christ who died on Calvary, that our sins might be covered and we might receive new life through him. Any thoughts or comments on these visions of Amos and how they apply to us?
That's why we have to. Yeah, yeah. And that's why judgment will begin in the house of God. You know, you just. It, uh, those who claim to be like these people in Israel claim to be God's people, but. Yeah. And you used to, I thought one of the things you said, God learns. Yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. God is God. He doesn't learn. He knows it all. He's, he's, he doesn't have to learn. Yeah. Scripture. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. At least part of it. I, I pray that there's a remnant there, even if it's less than 50%. Unfortunately, I think that people look to the king as, as the source of that rather than mercy of God using his hand to, to stay them. You know. Right, right. It's about time. Uh, Ken, would you close us in prayer, please? Amen. Mm-hmm.